0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life.
1: For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Leah Rader, and um, I'm also honored to serve on the diaconate with this wonderful team here. And I'm honored to read this morning's scripture. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 to 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Thanks, Leah. Uh, First, before I get into the sermon, can I ask any of you who uh, are veterans or in the service to stand, please? We would like to honor you. Uh, We want to thank you for being willing to make personal sacrifices for the sake of others. Grateful for you all. I realize we're two days uh, past Veterans Day, but church didn't meet on Friday. So um, before we get into the sermon, also just want to um, uh, let you know that we've got an exciting staff-related announcement that we're going to make next week. So uh, be here for that, and uh, I'm just going to let you sit with that and and wonder uh, until next week. But uh, I'll start with this. Uh, one of the major emphases uh, at Christ Prez, really the major emphasis, is uh, that we esteem the entire Bible. Uh, we think it's God's Word. Uh, we think it's inspired. We think it's perfect. We think it's inerrant and infallible uh, in uh, especially its original Hebrew and Greek uh, manuscripts from which we get translations like the one in front of us. That includes those parts of the Bible that give us long lists of names. And, you know, we may look at a passage like this and think, what, what is there to say from a list of names? And I, I hope to convince you in the next few minutes that, that even those lists, uh, just like the book of Leviticus, uh, just like those obscure uh, seeming texts about Old Testament sacrifices and, and rituals and symbols, they're significant. All Scripture, uh, this same writer says later, all Scripture uh, is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that the man, woman, or child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, um, so about the long lists of names, uh, I'd wondered why on earth God would give so much press to lists of names, especially ones that included people that we know nothing about. And then one of our seminary professors at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis gave a sermon in chapel once. His name was Jim Hatch. And the text was this, Kosam. That was it. That was the whole text. Open up the Scriptures. Our Scripture reading today is Kosam, the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Kosam is listed in Jesus' ancestry. And what's unique about him is that we know nothing about him except that he is listed in Jesus' ancestry. And Dr. Hatch's point was this that in the eyes of God, there is no such thing as a disposable, forgettable human. You know, the late Francis Schaefer titled one of his books, No Little People. No Little People. Those that the world may ignore, God will not. In fact, those that the world tends to ignore tend to be the kinds of people that God gives his most, um, you know, undivided attention to. And so here we have the Apostle Paul finally recognizing that. What do I mean by finally? Well, if you know anything about the biography of the Apostle Paul, he had once been Saul of Tarsus. And like the Grinch, <clears throat> his heart was closed to every kind of person except his own kind. He talks about that at the end of his life uh, when he writes to a young protege named Timothy. He says, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He was wildly exclusive. He was elitist. He was a religious extremist. And he closed his heart to every kind of person except his own kind, because perhaps also like the Grinch, he had a heart, at least at that time, that was two sizes too small. But when Jesus changes him, the same thing happens to him as happened to the Grinch when he discovered the joy of Christmas. His heart was enlarged, and he recognized that to follow what Jesus called the narrow path will necessarily lead you to a wider, broader embrace of others. And Paul is exhibit A for us uh, in this, our last text uh, that we're going to be studying from Colossians. So three three points or three headings I'd, I'd like to run through with you. First, the rabbi stuff. Secondly, the other stuff. And finally, the most easily forgotten stuff. So the rabbi stuff. Uh, I've shared this before uh, with our community here at Christ Press, that that the ancient rabbis, especially of the school, uh, the type of school that Saul of Tarsus, the former uh, rabbi, had come from, prayed this prayer on a regular basis in the temple. Thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Amen. So, We have a closed heart. Racially closed, closed with with respect to gender, closed with respect to class. That's where he came from before he met Christ. So let's go through those three things one by one. Race. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a Gentile. And yet here in this text, among those that Paul mentions positively as part of his community... As part as as being among his fellow servants include Gentiles. There, there are both Greeks and Jews that that he mentions here, and the mention of each one of those at this stage in his life is evidence of a heart that's been transformed by Christ in different ways. First, the the Gentile mentions. So C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, I think it was in the Four Loves, about uh, an inner ring uh, mindset that many of us have, where, where we we essentially Hive ourselves off into closed, closed communities and echo chambers that include only people who think like us, uh, vote like us, make the kind of money that we do, live in the same kind of neighborhood that we do, work in the same kinds of organizations we do, etc. The inner ring mindset. This defined Paul's former life. And we see in Luke chapter 9 that this was even something that the disciples of Jesus uh, hadn't gotten rid of. Um, completely, the inner ring mindset, because Jesus takes them through Samaria uh, you know, and to the Jewish community for decades and centuries. The, the Samaritans were this despised people group. They're the untouchables. They're the people that you didn't want to be around, a lot like the Samaritan woman at the well. And And one of the disciples suggests, hey, as long as we're in Samaria, Lord, how about you call fire down on these Samaritans so we can watch you burn them to smithereens? That would be fun wouldn't it? That would be something that God wants, right? And it says that Jesus rebuked not the Samaritans, but his own disciples for that inner ring violent mindset. So it's a surprise here that somebody like the Apostle Paul who'd come from that school is suddenly you know, opening his heart to all kinds of Gentiles, including the recipients of this letter, the Colossians. But it's also quite miraculous. That Paul still has room in his heart for Jewish people. Why? Because ever since Paul had bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and become a disciple and ambassador for Jesus Christ, he'd become rejected and shunned and run out of the temple by the people that he grew up with. They rejected him because he was now with Jesus and yet here he is including some jewish folks who have not renounced their jewishness but continue to embrace it in spite of the pain that's there and you know we see this played out uh, you know especially in an especially beautiful and tragic way when in romans chapter 9 paul opens up about how he'd been rejected by his brothers according to the flesh by his ethnic community And he shares his grief of the loss of that community, and and then he he talks about the extent of the love that he still has for them to the point where he says, if I could, I would be accursed so that they could know Christ. I wish that they could know Christ. There's no hint of vindictiveness, of retaliation, of resentment, of victimhood. There's no hint of that. His heart remains open even to those who betrayed him. Okay, so how about the gender part? Thank you, my God, that I'm not a woman, a prayer that he used to pray but prays no longer. He mentions in verse 15 a woman named Nympha. She's also likely uh, either a widow or a divorcee because she is mentioned alone. Uh, Unlike Priscilla and Aquila and, and, and others who Were typically mentioned as couples. Whenever a a woman was mentioned in Scripture, the the husband's name was also mentioned. There's no husband mentioned here. And and what's significant about nympha? Well, in those days, in this social climate, women, like Gentiles, like slaves and servants, were considered uh, bottom dwellers on the social hierarchy ladders. Of the day. Women were considered insignificant. They weren't taken seriously. They weren't allowed to vote. They, they, they didn't have a voice, but not so in Christ. It says about Nympha that not only is she accepted and embraced by Christ, she's a church that meets in her home. Not unlike the businesswoman Lydia in the book of Acts, who also has a whole church that meets in her home. You know, these and other women are added to the prominent women of the Old Testament, like Sarah, like Pharaoh's daughter who rescued the baby Moses, like Deborah who was a judge of Israel, like Ruth, like Esther, like Rahab. Nympha is now added to those women who are elevated as equals with the men and even as leaders and even as prominent people in the church of Christ. Because Whatever your generation, whatever your culture's hang-ups, Christ dignifies everyone. There's no such thing as a little person. There's no such thing as a disposable, forgettable human. And then we go to the New Testament. There's all these Marys, right? Mary, who is the esteemed mother of Jesus, who also gives us this theologically rich, packed you know, poetry and, 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 and song called the Magnificat, which no doubt we will revisit this Advent as we do every year. And then there's the other Mary, the sister of Martha, who the Scriptures tell us sat at Jesus' feet, which rabbis wouldn't allow anybody to sit at their feet unless they considered them to be legitimate, bona fide disciples. You never saw a woman sitting at the feet of a rabbi until Jesus comes along. And then there are the other Marys. All these women named Mary. I, I, I have a theory, and that's that Jesus wants to honor his mother. And so he makes sure that all of these women named Mary are, are elevated, right? Who are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? Three women, all named Mary. And they become the heralds. They become the apostles to the apostles. The Lord is risen. And then we've got Phoebe, the, the deacon of the church at Kenture. We've got Lydia, who have already mentioned, Anna the prophetess. We've got the women who prophesy in the assembly, according to Paul, in his Corinthians letters. In Paul's letters, there are, there are 19 mentions of women in 13 letters. He would have never done that in his former life. But having recognized that all men and women are created equal his tune is entirely changed. And then the last one, class. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a slave, they would once pray. And here he mentions in verse 9, Onesimus. Last year we did a a series on Paul's letter to Philemon, which concerned Onesimus, who was at the time an escaped slave, that Paul had had led to Christ uh, as he was on the run. And he became very helpful to Paul and a servant of the gospel, and so on. You can you can go back and I won't rehash that whole series right now, but you can go back and listen to those sermons to learn more about Onesimus and Philemon. But we're talking about somebody who was once an escaped slave, and now he's elevated uh, to Paul's level of leadership and of dignity, and so on. And then on the flip side, he mentions Luke, verse fourteen, who's a prominent physician. And also, as we know from the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, a very skilled researcher and also a historian and also a very skilled author. What we've got here, just by the mention of these two names, Onesimus and Luke, is, is right in our face, from God, underdogs and elites belong. Underdogs and elites are equal to one another. In fact, it is conceivable that there could be a church where Onesimus is an elder and Luke, the prominent physician, submits to Onesimus, the former slave, and his spiritual leadership as a member of the church. That's how things can work and should work inside the body of Christ, which turns all the world's systems and hierarchies upside down. And to drive the point home for for the rabbi stuff, I'll get to the other stuff here in a second, but the rabbi stuff, to drive the point home, you know, thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Who are the first three converts, the first three people that the Holy Spirit sees fit to bring into the family of God through faith in Christ in the book of Acts, but a Gentile, a woman, and a slave? The gospel flattens the ground. There is no human who is so significant that he or she is above the status of a servant in the kingdom of God. And likewise, there is no human being so insignificant that he or she is beneath wearing a crown. Psalm 8: What is a human being? You've made human beings a little bit less than God crowned the human with glory and honor. Who are the humans? In the beginning, God made them, he and she. God made them, him and her. God made them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Equals. So the reason why we sing, and will be singing in the coming weeks, let every heart prepare him room, is because his heart, Jesus' heart, has prepared room for every heart. It's the hospitality of Jesus Christ toward the likes of Paul that lead Paul to to, to hospitality for the like for all kinds of, 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 of humans. Okay, so that's the rabbi stuff. You know, the gospel overcomes a lot of social hurdles. A lot of hurdles of resentment and prejudice and, and victimhood and, and oppression and all, all these things, right? All these trigger words that we hear in American politics—that that 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 that—that that, that, that assume that there's no such thing as reconciliation. There's only power, and 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 there's only um, you know lack of power. There's only villains and victims, and the solution to the villain and the victim is for the victim to become the villain, and and history repeats itself, and for the villain to become the victim. You know, fight the power instead of reconciliation and peace. The gospel shows a different way. The gospel empowers something different. Spiritual vitality in Christ always and necessarily leads to social vitality in Christ. So the other stuff for rabbis and non-rabbis alike, just more opportunities Paul gives here for the enlarging of the heart through the mention of names. Prisoners, that's another mention that's named. This is one of Paul's four prison letters written from prison. This is a theme. If you were near to Christ, there was a good chance, especially if you were a public person who was near to Christ, that you would be put in prison someday. 11 of the 12 disciples were imprisoned at some point or another. And 11 of the 12 disciples, actually, no, the 12 also died in prison, John. So 12 of the 12, 11 of the 12 died as martyrs because of their faith. Prisoners. He mentions Aristarchus, who is his fellow prisoner. Now, there's also John the Baptist, who sent messages to Jesus from prison. There's Peter and Silas who sang a hymn in prison, uh, in the book of Acts. Prison. You know, in a world at that time where everyone disowned their incarcerated friends and their incarcerated family, guilt by association, right? So everybody would disown those incarcerated friends and relatives. What does Paul say? Remember my heroism? Remember my insight into the gospel and the things of God? Remember how, how costly my discipleship has been? Those things are all true, but that's not what he says. He says, remember my chains. Be proud that you're associated with somebody who's got the f- kind of faith that would put him in prison. Be proud of it. Take pride in it. Prison, <laughs> turns out, Then, and and in many ways now, to be a theater for God's power and grace. You know, again, Paul's got four letters that he writes from prison. Think about the influence that he's still having over the whole world and over us right now. John Bunyan writes The Pilgrim's Progress. Where did he write it from? Prison. Bonhoeffer wrote some of his best works. Where? From Prison. A couple of years ago, um, a man named Anthony Ray Hinton uh, gave a talk uh, from where I'm standing right now about his life. He was a black man who was put in prison for being black. He was falsely accused uh, of a murder that he did not commit. It took 30 years of his life, all of which he spent on death row. And eventually, a, a man named Brian Stevenson uh, from Alabama lawyer from Alabama, uh, you know, fought to reopen his case and uh, put the facts in front of the courts, and Hinton was given his freedom back. And when when Ray Hinton was here telling some of his story, which you can read the whole thing in in, in his book called "The Sun Does Shine." The sun does shine, but but he talks about how one of his his cellmates on death row, who was at the cell right next to him. Was, was a man who had beaten, stabbed, and lynched a boy because he was black. And that, that's why he was on death row. And, and this man was also, his name was Henry Hayes. He was a son of a leader in the Ku Klux Klan who was taught all of his life to hate people because of the color of their skin. And Hinton describes how his mother had taught him growing up in the name of Jesus that that we are called not only to love our own kind, we are called to love our enemies as well, just as Christ has loved us when we were his enemies. And so, instead of writing this man off, instead of closing his heart to this kind of man, the likes of whom put him in there and took 30 years of his life from him for crimes he didn't commit, Hinton sought to befriend Henry Hayes, spoke kindly to him, spoke comforting words from Scripture to him as Henry Hayes grew more and more and more afraid of his pending death. And Henry's last words as they were about to put him to death for his heinous crimes were these words about Ray Hinton. He said, all my life, my father, mother, and community taught me to hate the very people who would later teach me to love. Tonight, as I leave this world, I leave knowing what love feels like. Because Ray Hinton's heart was not two sizes too small. Somehow along the way, God had had increased the size of Ray Hinton's heart to, to make room even for Henry Hayes prisoners. Secondly, worldly people. Mention is made in verses 15 and 16 of the people at Laodicea. They're mentioned three times here, more than anybody else is mentioned. And so if you go to Revelation chapter 3, you'll see a description of the people at Laodicea, specifically Christians in Laodicea, where it says they're lukewarm, they're nominal, they're Christian in name only, and they're vomit-worthy. Jesus says, your your boredom with the things of God, your passivity about the things of God makes me sick. But he's not sick against them, he's sick for them. And here we have Paul not writing off the Laodiceans any more than Jesus wrote off the Laodiceans, because it's the Laodiceans to whom Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open to me, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And then he also mentions in verse 13 the city of Hierapolis. This was a hub for the worship of false gods, of idols, especially Apollo, Leto, and Pluto. They'd forsaken the living God, and, 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 and yet Paul's holding out hope. He's not reducing them to their, their very worst features but rather he's elevating them to the very, their very greatest potential in Christ and through Christ. So here's a, a quick pop quiz for you. How far do you have to go to become beyond the reach, completely beyond the reach of the love of Jesus Christ? It's a trick question. You cannot get far enough away to be beyond his reach. The 139th Psalm asks this question, where do I go to flee from your spirit? And the answer is you can't get away from his spirit. You know, David Filson, Pastor David Filson often talks about how grace is on the chase, right? Surely goodness and mercy, it says in the Psalms, will follow me all the days of my life. It's not you who follow Christ. It's him who follows you. The only reason why you follow him is because he follows you all of the days of your life, in the same way that he followed Saul of Tarsus, all the days of his life, even on that road to Damascus, that murderous road where he intercepts him. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're some kind of choice person. No, you're a chosen person. Not because of anything good in you, but because of the swelling love of the enlarged heart of God toward you, having nothing to do with any merit or resume or morality or better than-ness, or elitism that you bring to the table. You're no higher than a prostitute. You're no higher than a bottom dweller. The saddest, most most pathetic place to be as a human being is in the place of pride, to think that it's somehow because you're so special that God just couldn't resist you. Well, he couldn't resist you but not because of your merit, but because of his own swelling heart, even toward betrayers. Which is our next example, verse 14, he mentions Demos. Later on in Second Timothy, Paul will mention Demos again in this way. He has deserted us. He has deserted the faith. Why wouldn't Paul go back to his letter of Colossians and edit out Demas? Because we we want to keep the story clean. We don't want sketchy people like Demas, you know, to to tarnish the story of the power of God and the grace of God with their betrayal. Maybe Paul had his own former, former betrayals in mind, or maybe he had the Gospels in mind, you know, In the Gospels, the Gospel writers, they can't bring themselves to call Judas anything but the betrayer. That's, that's the word, that, that's the, the phrase, and, and that's true. Judas betrayed the cause, he betrayed the people, he betrayed the Lord. But what's the last word that Jesus uses in reference to Judas? Friend. As Judas is in the act of betraying him, and betraying all that is good and beautiful... Jesus says, friend, do what you came here to do. Why would Jesus have warmth in his heart even toward the one that the Bible calls the son of perdition? It's because of what it says in Ezekiel chapter 33. I know you read that book all the time, and so you know exactly what it says there. It says, God takes no pleasure in the death of a wicked person. He takes no pleasure in the death of a wicked person. You know, there's this this famous sermon that a lot of you read in literature class, and you've you've probably had a bias against Jonathan Edwards just because of the title of the sermon. That's how superficial we are. We we, we make judgments based on headlines. And you you probably know what the title of the sermon is, right? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, that's all the more reason to dismiss everything that Jonathan Edwards ever had to say, and all the more reason to dismiss Christianity because he preached in the name of Christianity. I mean, what more do I need than a sermon with a title like that to determine that it's all false? What people don't know about this sermon is that it's filled with mercy, (laughs) including the posture of Jonathan Edwards when he preached the sermon, where he was filled with tears of compassion. As he held out to people the truth that, yes, Jesus is a lion who has teeth. He has teeth, and he bites really hard on the head of pride and self-sufficiency and godless demeanors. He has teeth. He's fierce. But that didn't cause Jonathan Edwards to strut. It caused him to weep, even as Paul did for his fellow Jews who did not know Christ. But this same sermon from Edwards also talks about how Jesus is a lamb, who's tender, who rescues us from the lion's teeth if we would but come. even betrayers. There's room. People with an uninteresting story, like Tychicus, verse 7, a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant... Nothing spectacular there, no, you know, radical, you know, drug-addicted conversions to sobriety, etc. Just, just a beloved, faithful servant. And then Epaphras in verse 12, again, a servant of Christ Jesus who prays and loves the local church. Sounds pretty boring, doesn't it? So as someone who did not come to know Jesus Christ until I was 21 years old, let me tell you, this is the most exciting testimony I could ever imagine. If I, I often fantasize about how f- much further along I would be in Christ had, had I been told the gospel when I was five instead of when I was 21. Had I had those, those extra 15 to 20 years of sanctification and of hearing Scripture and of knowing grace, maybe I would be further along, maybe even much further along than I am now. Don't ever dismiss An unspectacular story. It's a story we pray for our children at baptism. May they never know a day where they don't know Jesus. And then we treat the testimony as boring when it happens. It's a thrilling testimony. It's a remarkable testimony of the power of God. Who else could keep a violent sinner in Christ from cradle to grave it's the furthest thing from boring. We are all the Apostle Paul. We are all blasphemers and persecutors and violent people. Seeds in our heart of adultery. Seeds in our heart of murder. Seeds in our heart of the very worst imaginable things. I love and hate that last line of the Sufjan, Sufjan Stevens song about John Wayne Gacy Jr., who buried his his serial killer victims under his own floorboards and. Sufjan gets you at the end. He comes in through the side door. He says, in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards to the secrets that I have hid. That's you. That's me. And and, and any God who who could keep anyone from that for a day, let alone for a lifetime, is the kind of God who might even have the power to speak a universe into existence with his words. There's no such thing as a boring story. Unreliable people. John Mark mentioned in verse 10. Famously rejected in Acts chapter 15 by the Apostle Paul because John Mark had waffled. He'd been fickle about whether or not he was going to be on the mission of God with these courageous servants. And he bowed out, and Barnabas wanted to bring him back in. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Paul said no. No second chances. But Somewhere along the way, Paul changed his mind, right? Because here he is, commending John Mark, who would eventually be the one to pen Peter's gospel, which we know is the gospel according to Mark. And then finally, the most easily forgotten stuff. John Stott writes this. How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is, it is safe to treat others as we'd like them to treat us, but it is safer still to treat them as God does. So, so what's the one remaining type of person that it takes radical transformation to embrace them? It's the one in the mirror. And we see Paul doing this. Paul who says at the end of his life, I, I'm the chief of sinners. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. There's so much reason for Paul to hang it up. So much reason for him to heap shame upon himself. And yet here he is saying, remember my chains, y'all. Remember my chains. He was harsh toward Mark. And now he's saying, welcome him. This from a man who previously didn't welcome John Mark. You know, what drove Barnabas and eventually Paul to stick with John Mark was the same thing that Paul talks about here in verse 18, grace. Grace be with you. The definition of grace is this. Complete acceptance and favor from an unobligated giver. That's from Tim Keller. I'd love to take credit for it, but I'm not going to because it's his. Complete acceptance and favor from an unobligated giver. Whatever, what enables Paul to say grace with you is, is his, his living awareness that, that grace is with me. How does he start this letter? I am Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I am who I am because of the grace of God. And so whether you're talking about the Apostle Paul, whether you're talking about Anthony Ray Hinton, both could say, as every Christian could say, two things. Number one, what I did to Christ is infinitely worse than anything that could ever be done to me. And secondly... The grace of Christ is infinitely greater than anything that I've ever done or will do to him. When an unobligated giver grants you complete acceptance and favor, it enlarges your heart to start doing the same for the sake of others. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for for the belonging that this scripture communicates that every kind of person has welcoming arms reaching out to them from Jesus Christ himself. And for those who've placed our trust in you, you say, come to my table and eat and drink of my body and blood. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so, Lord, we wish to come to you in that way now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.